Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. We, you know, people complain a lot about regulation, Tyler, that the world is no longer, you know, the free place it used to be and how government controls everything and our lives. And there's a lot of frustration about, about all of that kind of stuff. And yet, you know, at the same time, a significant portion of the planet is completely unmanaged and unregulated. There is still the vast wild, if we would say it in America, the vast wild west is still out there. The uninhibited, unmanaged, unregulated portion of the planet. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. You know, it's a major subject that we've talked about several times. What happens when we have an interest as people in what is going on out on the high seas? The high seas. How do we regulate that? That is not within the bounds of any particular country's uh, uh, borders, but no. it certainly is within the bounds of our interests as you know people on this planet. Yeah. And so today we're going to learn about a incredibly important treaty that is working its way through the United Nations. Yeah. And Peter, we're going to dive in and see what's being done about this major hole in our regulatory system. Yeah, and in the United Nations is the uh, the vehicle um, to manage the high seas and there is a there is an important negotiation as you say for a new treaty which we're going to get into with a great guest who is at the negotiations in the city of New York right now, uh, trying to bring this treaty across the finish line. So our guest today is Nicola Clark. She is with the Pew Charitable Trust, uh, an officer for protecting ocean life on the high seas. Uh, she's been a participant and monitor of the negotiations for some time now. And uh, we're in the thick of it and looking forward to talking to Nicola about the status of those negotiations. We are at halftime. We are right in the middle of these negotiations and we're going to get an update. Yeah. And this is a consequential week, ladies and gentlemen, for the protection of the oceans. So pay attention to this show. Yeah. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, Nicola, welcome to the American Shoreline podcast, and thanks for taking time out of what I assume is a very busy schedule at the United Nations in New York City on the negotiations. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, um, it's it's a it's 
it's been a busy week, um, but but so so excited to join you guys and and talk a little bit more about the treaty that we're negotiating. Well, I think that's a great place to start. It, it is called the Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction Treaty, the BBNJ. Only the right. UN comes up with stuff like the BBNJ. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. The full title is actually horrifyingly even longer. Go ahead. Let's hear it. It's uh, on a treaty on the conservation and sustainable use of marine biological diversity beyond national jurisdiction. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So introduce our audience to the physical area of this treaty, the area beyond national jurisdiction. What does that mean? Yes. Great question. Um, so typically it has, so the areas beyond national jurisdiction, um, generally speaking, are, are two, the areas of the ocean that are 200 nautical miles beyond shore. So from the coasts to about 200 nautical miles, countries are allowed to claim an exclusive economic zone. So those areas tend to be under their jurisdiction. Um, and then the water column beyond that is considered the high seas. Um, so I know that we sort of use high seas colloquially to sort of be this like piratey, scary, wild version of the ocean, but there is a, an actual legal definition, hmm. um, which is that 200 nautical miles beyond. Um, and if, I'll get just maybe slightly wonky to also say, um, so it's the, the high seas, which is the water column, but it's also the area, which is the seafloor, um, that is beyond national jurisdiction. Um, so it's those two components that constitute areas beyond national jurisdiction. And that's the geographic scope of this treaty that's under negotiation. I, I, I'm just curious, what about Antarctica? Uh, what happens to areas around there? They don't have an exclusive economic zone. So Antarctica is a very special place, uh, both Legal, of course, biologically speaking, but also legally speaking. So there's a whole separate treaty system um, that deals with um, with deals with Antarctica. It's called the Antarctic Treaty System, the ATS, um, and there are a number of organizations um, that help to to manage it. It's actually it's a bit of a tricky situation. Um, so while there is a whole separate treaty system that manages. Um, that particular place, Antarctica and and sort of the the, the waters um, around Antarctica are are considered the high seas. Um, so technically, still within within the scope of this treaty. So the um, areas beyond uh, national jurisdiction, Tyler, comprise ninety five percent of the ocean. Huge, and about fifty percent of the planet is the high seas. What we're describing as the high seas. This is a huge, huge area. And these days, like in the exclusive economic zone of the United States, the U.S. manages who can catch fish and what kind of fish can be caught and how much. And we manage all of the resources in our exclusive economic zone. But outside 200 miles, it's open season. Um, Nicola, tell us about what the purpose of this treaty is. What do you guys, what is the United Nations trying to do? Can you put it in the broad context? Absolutely. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll back up just a little bit and say, um, so this is an implementing agreement to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which we call just the Law of the Sea or UNCLOS. Um, and it is uh, lovingly referred to as the Constitution for the Oceans. Um, so this, is a, this was sort of like the OG treaty, right? The, the Law of the Sea Treaty. 
Um, and that was finalized in, in 1982. Um, and there have been a couple of, by a couple, I mean literally two other sort of agreements that came that were negotiated under it to sort of help fill in some of the gaps or the, the details that uh, that particular treaty was silent on. So um, one of the obligations that the, the Convention on the Law of the Sea sets out is this, this duty to protect the marine environment. But they don't really spell out a lot of details as to exactly how that's supposed to happen or what that looks like or even give sort of the, the legal tools and, and mechanisms to, to have that, that set up. Um, and I mean, there are different parts of the high seas and different high seas activities. There is there's some management. So while it's it's definitely um, the Wild West compared to um, domestic waters, you know, there are some uh, like, for example, regional fisheries management organizations that manage um, very specific species um, of fisheries within the high seas. Um, there's a body that manages mining in the high seas. Um, and another that regulates shipping. But the problem is it's very, um, it's like a very sectoral approach, right? So they're only pretty, um, pretty myopic and focused on managing um, either that very specific activity or in some instances, just those very specific species um, that they're meant to be focusing on. Um, and, and the other challenge is that all of these governance and management organizations that we do have out there are really focused on use and regulating um, human use and theoretically making sure that that use is sustainable. But there really aren't any international organizations that are out there that are focused on the conservation piece and really giving us the tools that we need to conserve and to protect these areas. And so it's a major gap that we have in ocean governance. Um, and, you know, starting almost almost 20 years ago, um, the UN decided that it wanted to address this gap um, and to, to establish another implementing agreement to the Law of the Sea that would focus on this issue of marine biodiversity, of, of conserving and sustainably using marine biodiversity in the high seas. And so that's where we are today. Can you elaborate a little bit more on um, the decision, I guess, to focus on biodiversity? You know, that's yeah. Excuse me. That's an interesting term, an yeah. interesting concept to focus on when you're thinking about conservation. I like it because to me it means, I guess, all of the life. Yes. Um, and the life is a dynamic thing that interfaces with other aspects of the ocean, like the water and the chemistry that are non-living. But could you talk a little bit more about the decision to kind of uh, you know, focus on protecting biodiversity? Yeah. So... You know, if we look at the long and winding road um, that that led us here today, I mean, it was it was you know 2002 um, when there was sort of the first discussion at the UN to discuss protection of the marine environment, um, and between 2002 and 2004, that sort of came to this idea that you know when they're talking about marine environment, you know, they they really wanted to focus on the the biodiversity, the the living aspects of of the marine environment and the biodiversity there. Um, you know, and I think that um, there there was a recognition that some uh, there have been other agreements that have focused on very specific aspects of biodiversity, right? Specifically looking to fish, um, and again, we're talking certain certain specific species of fish. Um, but but yeah, that 
there really was a gap in protecting the marine environment when it came to biodiversity as a whole. Um, and so, yeah, so that's that's sort of where um, that, I guess, the evolution came from. Um, and I mean, even more specifically, though, so the 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 um, the title of the treaty is, of course, focused on on marine biodiversity in the high in areas beyond national jurisdiction. Um, but it actually has um, four package elements, they're called. Um, and so this is an interesting piece of the treaty is that we actually won't be able to have a, a final finished treaty unless we can come to an agreement on all of those, there are all four of the the package elements, hmm. um, and they're quite. It's it's quite a span. Um, so, the first uh, package element is marine genetic resources, um, and dealing with issues of accessing and benefit sharing of marine genetic resources. The second package element is, I think, the one that probably most people are are focused on, um, at least from conservation organizations, and that's the. Um, ABMT, Area-Based Management Tool uh, chapter of the package. Um, and that's the one where um, they are talking about marine protected areas and where we're discussing, you know, creating a, a, a treaty that's going to enable us to establish protected areas in the high seas. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third element is um, environmental impact assessments. Um, so looking to um, have some, uh, <laughs> some sort of EI, EIA environmental impact assessment regulations or requirements um, in the high seas, just to sort of have that baseline um, level to make sure that activities that are taking place in the high seas are going to be it, truly sustainable um, and, you know, not causing significant harm. And then there's the final element of the package that's uh, the capacity building and transfer of marine technology. Um, and that's its own element, but, you know, also recognizing that we're going to need to be doing capacity building and technology transfer um, to support all of these other um, tr package elements of the treaty. So, uh, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's biodiversity um, writ large, but then there are those also those four specific package elements that the treaty is focused on. Very good overview. Thank you. I have just a question. Yeah. Can I just, this, I'm going to throw, this, how many pages is this bad boy? <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, so expecting? the, um, it's a great question. The text is always evolving. Um, I mean, we have several, uh, hundred pages of different comments and text proposals, and that's all being very live. I, I literally just pulled up my current, the current version Ugh, of the draft peek. treaty text, um, is 55 pages long. So it's not too bad. Yeah. Um, it's we reasonable. do expect a, we're, we're promised to have a new version of the draft treaty text on Sunday for us to continue um, the negotiations in the second week. So we'll see how long the um, this this new text is. But it's been hovering between, you know, 55, somewhere between like 45 and 65 pages or so. Okay, so there's 193 member countries, I believe, in the United Nations. Yes. Uh, 49 member states are participating in this negotiation for the BBNJ. Uh, I love the name of this, Tyler. That org, the group of people who have convened in New York That's right. to negotiate this thing is called the High Ambition Coalition. Which I, I think, <laughs> I was joking before the I show. I just love the whole UN language system. Oh, the, yeah. The High Ambition Coalition is meeting. I was joking before the show that uh, this is going to be my, like, 
techno band. High <laughs> Ambition Coalition. You'd go see it. that band. I, I love now, it. You're going to go dance yeah, to, we're gonna to dance the High Ambition Coalition. Yeah, I think so. But here's what I want to ask you, Nicola, is when you look at, and this is something that's kind of peculiar um, in the United Nations universe of things, that um, we're going to negotiate this treaty. Uh, people opt in to the negotiation and, and potentially opt in to uh, sign and ratify the treaty. The 49 member states, they're not bad, Tyler, but who's, who's missing? Uh, no Russia, no USA, no China participating in the High Ambition Coalition. But let's talk a little bit about who's smart enough to get their ass to the table and take this seriously. Yeah, let's, let's start let's, about let's, who's there. Who's there? Because this is a kick and party at it the is. High Ambition Coalition, I got to say. That's right. <clears throat> Oh, yeah. I mean, and so maybe just to, to clarify, um, so, you know, absolutely right on the, the high ambition coalition having, you know, the, the 49 members. I, I thought we might have gotten to 50, but maybe it is just 49. But just, just to say that that's actually, um, so there are, are many more, all, all of the UN member states um, are participating in the actual negotiation huh. of the treaty okay. itself. So the, the members of the High Ambition Coalition is sort of as it sounds, right? Those are the ones who, are commit, who have sort of made a high level political commitment to say, you know, we want a strong uh, treaty and we want to get a treaty done by 2022. Huh. Um, so, so okay. yeah, so to say like, absolutely, that is, um, you know, a smaller, um, a smaller group of, of countries who are part of that high ambition coalition, but it is, you know, these negotiations, it is, um, you know, Russia is there, the United States is there. This is something that, you know, everybody, they know okay. it's a party. And so we've got, you know, oh, good, good participation. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I have another question about this. So, yes. um, the High Seas Treaty, uh, yes. which is the, I'm going to say the, as you, you described it, I love that, the constitution of the ocean. Uh, no, excuse me, that's that, the law that's, of the sea. That is the, law, right. of the, the right. law of the Sea Convention right. 1982. Excuse yeah. me, the right. law of the sea. Now, the High Seas Treaty is a, it's safe to say, kind of a sub- Yeah, implementing yes. agreement. Now, that's right. the law of the sea, is it, my understanding is that the United States is not a signatory to that particular uh element uh, is is it such that only the signatories of the law of the sea are participating in the high seas treaty or can you be involved in the high seas treaty having not uh adopted the law of the sea nicola absolutely it's a great question so um so yeah. the the short answer is you don't have to have you don't you do not have to be a a member of or a party to the law of the sea convention to participate um, in the in the negotiations in these particular negotiations, and in fact, you know, the United States and uh, you know the handful of of other I, I should say a handful of other countries who are not a member of the haven't signed up to the Law of the Sea Convention, but they are still participating in these negotiations. Um, and the goal, it's certainly how they're they're planning to set it up. Although, I mean, it's. It's a it's a bit of of course the text is still under negotiation so we'll see how it actually shakes out but certainly the goal would be to set it up such that you do not have to be a member of um, the of the law of the sea convention um, in order to sign up for this one and in fact that's how okay. so I mentioned that there were a couple of other implementing agreements so there's another one the the fish stocks agreement that's an implementing agreement of UNCLOS. 
um, and the U.S. has has signed that piece. Um, and so we're we are. I think the the goal, the intention is for uh, to set up the same sort of system with this BB and J treaty, such that you could sign up to this even if you haven't signed up to the the UNCLOS itself to the Law okay. Convention. So we can be. Do you expect the U.S. to be a signatory to this treaty? Um, and separately, do you think it will be ratified by the U.S. Senate? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think, uh, look, you, it's a, it's it's a it's it's certainly above my pay grade <laughs> um, to, to yeah, say this, whether or not the too. United States is going to is going to sign in to ratify. Um, I mean, certainly they are. They are the United States has been really actively participating in this um, negotiation. You know, you look at um, they've had high level State Department commitments. So Monica Medina. Um, came to the last round of negotiations in person, um, which was which was pretty exciting to have her there and to have that high level political support. There. I'm sorry, who is she? Um, so Monica Medina is the she's um, the uh, assistant secretary of state. So she's within the State Department, a sec- okay. assistant secretary of state for the Bureau of Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific okay. Affairs. So, we're so yeah, so the- she's she's pretty senior, pretty senior. We're at the table. That's I'm really, I'm really happy to hear yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Because you know, I think that you know, my read uh, through these four areas, the the subcomponents of the BB and J, yeah, uh, those are all areas where we could really use. I think it would be in the United States' best interest. Yeah. Tell you what, right now, I have no problem telling the Senate ratify this bad boy. <laughs> I think we should. I think well, there should be a campaign. It's fifty-five pages right now, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we should do this. Fifty-five pages, and we get all this done. <laughs> That's incredible. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and the other thing that I should I should probably point out is so, you know, as you as you noted, even though the United States, we haven't signed up to the law of the sea, we do recognize it as customary international law. Right. Um, so there's your there is sort of this situation where um, if you have enough of the international community that signs up to a to a particular law or a treaty, um, it's then sort of recognized as customary international law, and you kind of have to abide by it anyway, okay. even if you haven't signed up to it. I like um, that. So there's there's sort of this motivation to you know you want to actually be joining the the treaty so that you can at least be part of the the direction that it that it takes, right? So you can be part of that um, decision making body that's that's taking decisions on these on these different issues. Um, but yeah, I mean, to say the, the United States has really been um, participating very, you know, I would say constructively. Um, and they've been, um, yeah, they've, they've, they've been very involved. They they always bring a really large team to the negotiations of really experienced diplomats. Um, so I know that they are, um, they are, uh, as I said, you know, we've seen from, again, very senior level, high level State Department folks who are, who are really um, working hard to get a strong BB&J agreement, right? And not only um, that, but they, they want to see um, high seas marine protected areas um, come out of this agreement, uh, or at least be able to be established um, by this agreement. Um, and they, they have also indicated that they see this BB&J agreement um, as a, a really important pathway to achieve this goal of conserving 30% of the global ocean by 2030. Right um, and that's even a tweet <clears throat> from the State Department <laughs> that, that's sort of to that effect. So yeah, they're, they're definitely there. And I think 
participating in, in, in good faith in the negotiations. Great. Well, there's a lot to do here. So the, the, this is the round five, essentially, one of the round four, which was supposed to be in, in March of 2022 for the group to get together and hammer out the agreement. COVID blocked that. So now we're in uh, the final round of discussions, apparently. Uh, yeah. The deadline, one week from the day of this recording, Tyler. So next Friday... Yes. Talk about having a, like, you know, when you're in college and you get a homework assignment to do a paper <laughs> and you get in here in the last week. These guys have been working on this for more than a decade. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's I don't down think you to the can wire. write in and say, can I have an extension? Yeah, that was my strategy, extension. but I don't think there's an extension coming. I mean, there's got to be a lot of pressure here. There's a, a, the clock is ticking and the issues yes. on the table are huge. I'm glad that yeah. you mentioned the protection of the 30% of the ocean by 2030 gold. This is the 3030 gold that. Uh, Biden has talked about for land and water conservation internationally and other organizations have around the world. Uh, this MPA issue, the Marine Protected Area issue, seems to me to be the biggest fish on the table. Is that, yes. the, is that the focus of this damn thing? And tell us what's <laughs> going on in the discussion. Great question. So I will say um, the, you know, the Marine Protected Area sort of chapter of the ne negotiations I think it's the one that people are really most excited about. Um, and I think, I mean, honestly, candidly, there's there's a lot of, I think, um, uh, it's maybe sort of one of the, the issues that's further along in the negotiations, right? I think there's a lot more agreement within, within the negotiating room. So, you know, I think the the United States is not alone, right? I My, my assessment of it would be that most um, most countries who are here at the negotiating table, they want to see this agreement um, enable the establishment of high seas MPAs, right? That's sort of a common goal that they are working towards. The devil really is in the details, right? So, um, so you know, I think it's the establishing MPAs, that's, that's something that people are all um, really working towards. The key issue um, that's really sort of tripping people up and where there's still some some divide in the room is over the establishment of management measures to support that marine protected area. Right. That's where right. the rubber meets the road. Or as exactly. we should say the not it's not the road. It's gotta be an ocean. It's where thing. the <laughs> exactly it's where, <laughs> where the, the, where where the, the propeller meets propeller the, meets the water. Know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. I think we have to do a propeller. Yeah, so the so the negotiation is to create the framework to establish marine protected areas. It's not there's That's not right. gonna be any you know, marks on the map that say this area is an MPA right. under the treaty. This is a process right. uh, framework that you're doing. And I can, and, and so what are the options when you talk about, let's say the mechanism to establish this would say somebody gets to decide that there is an area that is going to be protected and somebody gets to decide what's allowed or not allowed inside that area. Does the framework get into, tell us who under the treaty would be in a position to, how would this process work if we wanted to make one up? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, I think it's this this treaty, it's not just sort of going to be a, a piece of paper um, that's, that's sort of, all right, this is what the law is, great, great, great. But it's actually, um, the way it's looking, it's actually, it's sort of in the momentum of creating a new, sort of organization, right? So there will not huh. just be a BB&J 
um, treaty, but we we hope that there will be a BB and J body, right? That will have a huh. you know like a secretariat to sort of um, help with administrative matters and setting up regular meetings. You know, like like regional fisheries management organizations, right? Okay. Like, or the International have, Seabed Authority, which exactly, is a UN exactly, exactly. So precisely, yeah, exactly. So this would sort of be setting up another of those of those bodies. Huh. What's um, it called? Do they have they named it yet? Oh, they haven't named it yet. I'm so curious if they'll call it the BB and J body, Tyler? or if it'll get a new fancy <laughs> Man, name. Let's name the directorate, the new UN directorate for international. I think the High Seas Directorate. Yeah, the High Seas Council. Does that exist already? Yeah. What do we? What do you like? Do you have a name, Nicola? <laughs> I don't know. Let's I don't influence know. I mean, the negotiation. Like <laughs> BB and J is so near and dear to our heart that yeah, but I, I mean, it's a clunky title. BB and J. Well, but we love clunky titles. Do you? As I mean, well. but for a I governing mean, board. Seen, exactly. <laughs> you've seen all of these other, you know, all of the other RFMOs have even worse titles like WCPFC and ICAT and IATTC. Yeah, I can't take it. The UN is <laughs> it's impossible. too much. It's too much. At least BB&J sounds maybe like a sandwich. Well, that's like what possibly. we thought. We, that's what Tyler yeah. said. He's like, it sounds like a sandwich. And Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, who, who knows what this new body would be called, but... Um, it'll, it'll be out there and it'll exist. Um, and there will be, so all of the, the different countries who sort of sign up to it will then be parties and there will be a, a conference of the parties, which will sort of be like this, this regular, so basically countries will get together regularly. I mean, probably annually that's yet to be determined, but I think that's probably what a lot of people are thinking. Um, but they'll get together and they'll take decisions, um, on things like a marine protected area proposal. Um, so right now in the text, basically the, the process that it lines out is um, any state or, or group of states theoretically, but a, a, a state who is a member of the BB&J agreement um, would be able to submit a proposal for a marine protected area, you okay. know, and, and that proposal would say it would include things like, of course, the area to be protected, mm-hmm. um, but also, you know, it would identify um, like goals for that, you know, conservation goals, as well as, you know, ho- ho- again, hopefully draft text all still under negotiation. But but what's on the table right now is would that 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 proposal, in addition to the the area to be protected. It would also sort of identify a management plan um, and and possibly and measures that would be needed to to actually give effect to those protections, right? Yep. Um, so yeah, so uh, you know, a country would would submit that proposal for an MPA and associated management measures, um, and then there would be massive consultation that would take place um, internationally, where you know both other countries and um, and other um, affected stakeholders. So you would have some of these other governance bodies, we would hope, um, civil society, um, the, uh, um, scientists, scientific community would sort of provide input on that proposal. Um, and then it would be reviewed by a scientific body that would be un- as part of this new agreement. It would set up not only a decision-making body, but a scientific body. So the scientific body would review that proposal for an MPA. Uh, and then finally, it would go to the, um, the, the, the decision-making body, this conference of parties, um, and they would decide whether or not to establish that MPA and, and associated measures. I got to say, it makes wow. a lot of sense. And, you know, my follow-up question is, what, it, it, at this stage in the negotiation, 
are, is there any consideration given to how these agreements, once agreed to, would be enforced? Is Palau going to send out, you know, a, a vessel to uh, enforce, you know, how would that be done? Is And is that even, have we crossed that bridge yet? Or is there an interest? Because I have to imagine... Uh, it's a, it, you know, Peter, we talked about it at the beginning of the show, 50% of the planet. This is really, yeah. these are governing rules for 50% of the planet. Yeah, it's crazy. Jeez yeah. Louise, I get yeah. tired it's just thinking job. about that. That's yeah. a big yeah. commons. Yeah. yeah, my yard is a lot to handle. <laughs> <laughs> this is half the planet. Absolutely. I mean, um, so yes. So I think, you know, um, monitoring and enforcement and review of all of this um, is is absolutely a question that's um, that's under consideration. Uh, funnily enough, it's what we'll be discussing today during the <laughs> during today's negotiations this afternoon. We'll be talking about that particular article of the draft treaty text to, to do with monitoring and review. And, you know, I mean, at this stage, what will be in the treaty text will be pretty high level, right? It'll be sort of an obligation for for parties who are uh, who've signed up to this treaty text, who are a member um, of the agreement, to to sort of have a, a collective responsibility to monitor and to report, you know, based on what they've been monitoring back back sort of to the the decision making body. Um, I think you know what we're hoping for, and is also um, under consideration. Funnily enough, also being discussed today um, is this sort of implementation and compliance, right? Um, and I think one of the things that we at Pew um, think is going to be really important is to actually have a dedicated body um, on implementation and compliance. So just as you know, this treaty is setting up to have a scientific body to help provide scientific advice, we would also want to make sure that it sets up um, an implementation and compliance body to help make sure that um, and you know provide support for implementing this agreement. Um, you know, it, it doesn't get into the technical weeds of how monitoring will happen. And I think that's for the best, right? We want this treaty to last, we want it to be future proof. Um, so I don't think we want to be specifying how states should monitor within the text of the treaty, because at the rate technology is evolving, it'll be obsolete by the time we've got this entered into force. So, you know, I think it's good that it doesn't specify precisely how it will be monitored. But you know, I, I think absolutely, you know, it's going to be important that we we take lessons learned from, you know, for example, in particular, the fishing industry um, and how they've been doing monitoring for fishing to see if we can help to use and leverage some of those technologies and tools um, for the monitoring of the, the MPA chapter of this agreement and, and for the other chapters of this agreement as well. You know, Peter, you talked in the beginning of the show describing the ocean as the frontier. Yeah. And in my mind, I just see like a a ranger out on the ocean. <laughs> That's what we need, you know, just yeah. like a deputized with a good entity, hat. a good hat, like you a, gotta have a Clint Eastwood. I want law and order. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we need something. Well, that brings up a really good question. I think uh, you know when people are tracking this along, uh, they immediately, at least I do, jump past the procedural elements that you guys sure. are, need to put in place. And when you look at what's happening on the high seas, there's a couple of massive issues. I mean, international management of fisheries across the ocean, this is not unmanaged right now. Uh, right. It's species dependent, you know, bluefin tuna and other species that are 
that are uh, pelagic or sort of managed um, cooperatively in some way. Um, but the thing I want to talk about and want to ask you about is is the uh, seabed mining emerging interest in in marine minerals uh, from the seafloor. Um, as we know, the International Seabed Authority, a United Nations entity headquartered in Jamaica, already exists and manages this particular activity. Um, but there's 31, I believe the ISA has uh, allowed 31 contracts for exploration out in the open seas, the high seas. Uh, nobody's m- m- commercially mining yet. But, uh, you know, what it comes down to, and I got to think is lurking in these conversations, is, uh, you know, what about these marine protected areas? Can they prohibit seabed mining within an MPA? Is that a possible outcome of a bounded area? With a management plan, obviously, there'd be a boatload of process to go through to put any of this stuff in place. But I'm just wondering, is there any chance that this particular treaty gives the world a regulatory power that, I, you know, I, I don't know. People have questions about whether the International Seabed Authority is really looking out for the best interest of the environment. So I'm just wondering what's going on there. Yeah, that's a really, really good (laughs) question because it it actually gets to the heart of, I think, one of the stickiest issues um, of this negotiation, which is how this new BBNJ body will interact with what its relationship with these other bodies like the International Seabed Authority, like regional fisheries management organizations, how that's going to work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, Yeah. So, you know, I think the and the tricky thing is um, uh, a a lot of states. And I think what's what's very clear um, is that this new BB&J body will not be some supranational body that sits above all of the others and tells them what to do. Okay. as you know, as fun as that might sound, and you know, if that's I the were ranger, Tyler. Rewriting yeah. the world I'm, I'm from the really beginning. I'm really disappointed. <laughs> we want BBNJ Rangers, right? Exactly. Yeah, so as, you know, as 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 fun as that is to to envision, um, that's that's unfortunately that's not what's going to be happening, right? Okay. It's just so this BBNJ body, it won't be able to tell it like it won't be able to tell the ISA what to do. It right. won't be able to tell. Um, uh, regional fisheries management organizations what to do. Um, but the thing that I think is hmm. um, an important point to remember is that it's it's the same countries who are members of, of these different organizations, right? Um, okay. So, you know, it's, it's um, if, if uh, so what the BB, so while the BB&J agreement, it won't be able to say like, um, you know, ISA, you have to close this area to see, to seabed mining. It, it won't be able to do that, but okay. that doesn't mean that it, it, there's, there's nothing in the tool chest, right? I think there are still definitely mechanisms to help really apply some pressure to see change okay. on the water, on the seafloor, right? So, um, you know, we looked, for example, um, uh, if you have, if you're a member of the BB&J agreement, um, what the BB&J agreement could say is like, hey, if you're a member of BB&J, you need to push for stricter um, environmental protections within the ISA if you're also a member of the ISA. Okay. Right. So it's it's sort I of like it. it. I get it. It's, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's exactly. not a it's not a us and them kind of thing. It's right. an us and us because exactly. the same 
but it's a new forum and it's a That's new right. way to discuss the issues in a different perspective that is not That's an extract. Right. ISA is essentially, you know, in the business of extraction in one form right. or another. Hopefully they don't screw up the entire frickin' <laughs> seabed around the world because there's some real concern here, but... But I think it creates a new forum. And so what, for Pew, I mean, you t- tell us about why Pew is investing the kind of energy that you guys are in tracking this. And what do you hope to get out of it as an organization? Where do you want this to end up? What's, yeah. what, what's y'all's take? Yeah, I mean, I think you've, you've, you've already talked about sort of what's at stake here, right? I mean, it's, it's two-thirds of the ocean. Um, it's, it's almost half of the planet. Um, and it's for this two thirds of the ocean and almost half of the planet that we don't have the tools that we need to to protect, you know, these important areas that are out there, um, and to really make sure that use is sustainable. Um, and so, for us, the absolute key issues that we're wanting to get out of this agreement is, of course, as we've talked about a lot, marine protected areas. We want the treaty to be able to. We want this new BBNJ body to be able to establish not only marine protected areas, but also associated management measures. So we don't end up with paper parks. Um, and we also want to see, you know, some really robust requirements for environmental impact assessments. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about the NPA piece of things. And I think that's fair because that's that's the really exciting thing that we're all really wanting to do. But I, I, I think we shouldn't forget how powerful a really strong chapter on environmental impact assessments could be, right? Because, you know, you think about um, any sort of, uh, like at the moment, there, there are not a ton of requirements to make sure, like if you wanted to go and perform geoengineering experiments in the high seas, not a lot out there to sort of yeah. stop you. Um, so I think this, this chapter having robust provisions for environmental impact assessments could be a really helpful tool um, and making sure that, um, that, you know, any activities that are happening out there are, are not going to mess up the environment, not only of the high seas, but as you all know, high seas are inextricably linked to the coast. I mean, it's a totally arbitrary deadline that we've set of 200 nautical miles. Like the ocean doesn't care if it's the high seas or right. the exclusive economic zones. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so, you know, absolutely. I think <clears throat> thinking about just the connectivity um, and and how having really strong conservation provisions within a BB&J treaty can help ensure, you know, that all of the work that, that we're doing and that, you know, organizations and countries around the world are doing to protect their coastal waters um, is sort of um, uh, like uh, supported by a really strong provision within the high seas treaty as well. Right. So you like, I, just for example, right. Like let's, let's look at like Papa Hanamakua Kea, the um, United States marine protected area. That's, that's, that's in Northern Hawaii. Hawaiian islands. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So there are some high seas areas that are sort of just beyond that Papa Hanamakua Kea um, called the emperor seamounts. And um you know, we could look to see like all of this hard work that is being done to protect Papahanaumokuakea, we could extend it to the high seas and protect the high seas areas that are beyond that, right? And that can sort of help enhance um, the the protected area that's that the United States is taking in its domestic waters, right? So I feel like it's just such an important tool in our toolbox. Um, and it's one that's missing, right, to, to protect high seas areas. Um, and so for us, it's, it's yeah, this is a, a, like a once in a generation opportunity to just 
sort of change the ocean governance paradigm. Um, and so, yeah, that's we've we've been investing a lot in it because I think um, it really is such an important issue. It's it's half the planet at stake, and so we want to make sure we get it right. And it's changing. I think, Peter, what this is is we're thinking, you know, in this experiment that is humanity, we're thinking about our existence on the planet more completely. Yeah. And so we're thinking about the ocean, which is, you know, the dominant uh, feature of Earth. Yeah. And all of a sudden there's great interest in not only conservation, but also just understanding. And I would, you know, we've, we've kind of breezed through some of these four components. I do want to just ask about this genetic resources mm -hmm. piece. What does that mean? That's a great question. Um, and how we define marine genetic resources is uh, under <laughs> under intense debate this week and as we speak. Um, so, but basically, um, so yeah, so it's talking about, uh, well, let's, let's give this sort of hypothetical example. So, all right. Actually, let me start by thinking, going back to the seabed, right? Okay. Um, and to minerals that are there, right? So the reason that we have the International Seabed Authority and a big sort of principle as to how it's set up um, is that, you know, we're talking about a global commons here. And so they're saying, you know, the, the seafloor um, mineral resources belong to humankind, right? And that are, that are in international waters in these areas beyond national jurisdiction, these mineral resources belong to humankind. Um, and therefore, you know, the global community should should share from them sort of equally, right? We should we should make sure that we are are um, benefiting from that, that, that all of yeah. humankind is benefiting yeah. from that. Yeah. So the question for marine genetic resources is, well, should that same regime apply the common heritage of humankind where, you know, any benefits derived from these marine genetic resources in areas beyond national jurisdiction, should they also be shared yeah, with who all owns of humankind? Them? Um, so, um, yeah. Or should the freedom of the high seas prevail? So the actual, the constitution for the ocean, the law of the sea sets out certain freedoms of the high seas. Um, and so I think really the debate hmm. for the marine genetic resources. Are we sure there. Americans were not involved in the drafting <laughs> of that document? I think we well, were. We were so involved. <laughs> yeah, we, we were. were. Very Freedoms involved. of the high sea, Jesus. <laughs> Navigation, transit, that kind yes, of stuff. You can absolutely. fish, you can, you know, okay. uh, you yeah, can, that explains things it. like that. Well, I mean, it comes down to, let's say somebody goes out into the middle of the ocean and finds a really interesting little bug, some sort of bacteria that amazingly can consume an entire oil spill in a week. And this would be an amazing thing if it could be propagated and commercialized. And, you know, who owns it? Is that something that is the vast benefits to be derived economically from that discovery of this critter? Out in the, should that be so owned like by the, the whole world? Does everybody get a piece of the action? So what it is exactly. is, is to say that the genetic, organic, like yeah. uh, invention, if you will, is code material. It would be another thing. Yeah. Is is it ownable? Yeah. Can it be privatized? Is yeah. It, is there? Is that what's going on in that topic? Indeed, you've like all of the questions you're raising are all of the questions that are being debated <laughs> that's, um, that's on this particular topic. Yeah, so yeah, it's a it's a juicy one for sure. Well, what's cool about this, and 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 I, for the folks that listen to the American Tribe podcast in America, uh, this is not what's being discussed here is not unfamiliar, uh, Tyler. That we were talking about this before the show that. 
this identification of marine protected areas, area-based management planning is really similar to the National Marine Sanctuary setup that the U.S. has where you can designate these areas, come up with a management strategy, all of that kind of stuff that we do within our EEZ. And the environmental impact assessment, of course, is, is a foundational, uh, to, like the NEPA document, the National Environmental Policy Act here in America, where everybody does environmental impact statements and environmental assessments. So these ideas of setting aside designating areas, coming up with stakeholder-based management strategies and having an environmental impact assessment are tools that have been on display in the United States for 50 years. And, I, you know, it's not BS. I mean, these things do contribute positively to the management of and decision-making in the United States in our EEZ. And there's reason to believe it would be a positive thing to have on an international level, in my opinion. Oh, there's no question. Are we re- are we at the stage in the show where we can start just like going, <laughs> going big nerdy. picture? Yeah, go big picture. Because well, I'm, I'm... Yeah, go. Here's... I, I think this is... I think we're at this interesting um, moment in our... in the history of mankind. Because, you know, basically the environmental movement since the 70s, since, you know, you could even go back... I'm going to go back to you know, Teddy Roosevelt or whatever, like okay. the conservation period. But, yeah, okay. you know, we created laws that were, um, I think, excellent. They, you know, a lot of success stories, but we kind of segmented off air and water and land. And yeah, because these were things that were comprehensible. And also we hadn't gone to space yet. You know, I have to say we hadn't huh. orbited the earth. We hadn't looked at the planet kind of beyond huh. the the heavenly bounds of earth. Yeah. And now what's interesting is with the high seas treaty and uh, the law of the sea and thinking about the ocean more. And also I'm thinking about modern science. What are we learning every week on coastal news today, Peter? It's that the interconnectedness of the ocean with all aspects of the planet are inseparable. Yeah. And, uh, this was, we, we talked about this a little earlier, how, you know, the what goes on in the high seas affects the coastline. And Absolutely. I got news for you, too. What goes on inland affects the high seas. Yeah. Absolutely. So what's really Thank interesting you. to me, and also challenging, yes. Nicola, about this particular uh, treaty is that, theoretically, this could have implications far beyond, actually, I mean, I know there's an area, wow. but in truth... In scientific truth, the way you emit your carbon, the way that you produce plastic, the way that your rivers run into the ocean are all going to impact the high sea. So I just, you know, it's kind of a, you know, we talk about the sticking point. We need to do this. We need this governance on the high seas. But the implications are potentially sweeping. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, I like to, um, uh, yes, I, I, you couldn't see me because it's a podcast, but I've been nodding my head for, for everything that you've just been saying. Um, but, you know, I, I for me, um, the story of the, the leatherback turtle is really just sort of so symbolic of this connectivity um, between the high sea, like what happens on the coast affects the high seas, right, and, and vice versa. So, you know, you look to turtles as an example of just one species to sort of symbolize this connection where they go and, you know, they lay their nests on, on shore, right, on the coasts, um, and then they swim back out to sea. Um, and, you know, certain species of leatherback turtles spend most of their adult life on the high seas. 
Um, and we saw these these instances where even though people were trying to protect them and, and going to great lengths and successfully, you know, protecting their nesting habitats on the coasts, um, these these populations were still dramatically declining. And that's because they didn't have the protection on the high seas, right? They didn't have, they weren't getting that protection um, where they were spending most of their lives. So I think yeah. it really just points to how connected these are, right? Like, yes, we need strong protections and, and these strong sort of tools to conserve and to protect the environment um, on the coasts and in coastal waters. But we have to also make sure that that's, that's extended to, to, to recognize this interconnectivity with the, the high seas and, and the coastal waters. Um, and yeah, so, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, you're totally right that while the, the technical geographic scope of this treaty um, is the high seas, the, the impact is very much global. Well, it is a massive job. Uh, it's the first foray, I think, of serious effort internationally to get a handle on what's going on. Maybe that's not quite fair because there's a few institutional structures out there. But this is the biggest piece of the pie that I've seen on international uh, management of the high seas. And uh, it's got to be exciting, Nicola, to be at the negotiations in New York at the United Nations with the ambassadors and representatives from all of these countries trying to sort this thing out. Um, and we really appreciate you giving us an insight into what's going on up there. And, uh, I got to say, we wish you guys luck, uh, and everybody involved to, to come to an agreement. You got seven days as this thing is being recorded, you got seven days to pull it together and get it done. Yeah. And, uh, are you optimistic? Tell us, give us your, your sense. Are you going <laughs> to, is this going to happen? What are you guessing? You know, um, I, I'm, I'm an, I'm an optimist. Um, and, uh, I think um, we we absolutely we have got we've got a lot of work to do. There are still a lot of questions that are still um, still under debate, and still we need to find an answer to. Um, and you know the the negotiations have historically been moving c- kind of slowly. So we we do even though we're working really quickly, um, we need to pick up the pace. That being said. Um, there is a lot of political energy and momentum and not just high level political energy and momentum. So, you know, there's, there's, of course, you mentioned the high ambition coalition. Um, there are other really high level statements at like the G7 um, and, and, and others, right. The, and, mm-hmm. and the UN ocean conference, there was a lot of big high level momentum and pressure to get this treaty done at this, at this instance. And then there's also, you know, a lot of these negotiators, these diplomats who are there have been working on this for a while and they care very deeply about having a strong treaty and they also really want to get this done. So I think the energy is there. The momentum is there. And for me, my so my mantra for these these two weeks that we're here. So it's it actually comes from a, a former, um, pretty senior level State Department official, who was talking about the BBNJ um, negotiations, and he said, "You know, yes, um, these treat it's it feels almost impossible to get these treaty negotiations across the finish line, but so did every other treaty negotiation right before <laughs> we got it across the finish line." Right. Um, so I'm I'm still okay. optimistic. Um, I think we've got to pick up the pace, and we've got to um, we've got to really buckle down and work some long hours. But I think that 
the important piece and the reason why I'm optimistic is because that's the attitude that everyone at the negotiation has. They're they're ready to roll up their sleeves, to buckle down, and to you know to do whatever it takes to make sure that we get a, a strong high seas treaty at the end of this two weeks. Well, so glad to hear that assessment from a firsthand person who's been at the table watching the show for a while. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, it is Nicola uh, Clark. She is with the Pew Charitable Trust. Officer for Protecting Ocean Life on the High Seas and participating in the Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction negotiations at the United Nations in New York. Uh, Nicola, what a cool show. Thank you so much for talking to our listeners. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.